Thank you, everybody. My name is Cliff May. I'm the president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Um, our first panel this morning was on libel tourism. For our second panel, we broadened the discussion out. We're going to be talking about suppressing discourse of Islam much more generally. I think you know all of, um, all of those on the panel, but very quickly to my immediate left is our presenter, Robert Spencer, the distinguished author. Uh, and head of uh, Jihad Watch. Claudia Rosette is the journalist in residence for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Frank Gaffney is the president of the Center for Security Policy. Steve Emerson is the director of the investigative project uh, on terrorism. And Iban Warwick is the distinguished author, uh, most recently, of a critique of Edward Said's work. Um, I've, I, I know all the people on the panel, but I've only this time uh, finally gotten the, uh, the privilege and opportunity of meeting Iban Warwick, and I'm very grateful for that. We're going to start with uh, Robert Spencer's remarks, and then I'll ask some questions and open for discussion and, and allow you to get in as well. So with that, let me present Robert Spencer. Jihad is a precept of divine institution. It is preferable not to begin hostilities with the enemy before having invited the enemy to embrace the religion of Allah. They have the alternative of either converting to Islam or paying the poll tax, jizya, short of which war will be declared against them. Lawful warfare is essentially jihad, and its aim is that the religion is Allah's entirely and Allah's word is uppermost. Therefore, according to all Muslims, those who stand in the way of this aim must be fought. It is not lawful to make war upon any people who have never before been called to the faith without previously requiring them to embrace it, because the prophet so instructed his commanders, directing them to call infidels to the faith. I've just committed hate speech. <laughs> if I had gone into any public forum and made those statements, it is almost certain that the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Muslim Public Affairs Council, and similar organizations would have strenuously objected and portrayed those remarks as Islamophobia. I should add at this point that the first part of the statement that I made was a quotation from Ibn Abi Zaid al-Qawrawani, an Islamic jurist of the 10th century, the second part was from Ibn Taymiyyah, another Islamic jurist from the 14th century. And the third part was from a third school of law of Islam, echoing the same sentiments. The point being, of course, that what is altogether too often characterized as Islamophobia is simply Islamorealism. It is an accurate exposition of Islamic teachings regarding relationships between Muslims and non-Muslims. It is a fact, an unpleasant fact perhaps, a fact that many people 
on all the, from all across the political spectrum do not wish to acknowledge, but it is a verifiable fact that there is within Islam a developed tradition, doctrine, theology, and legal system spanning all the schools of Islamic jurisprudence and all the sects that are recognized as orthodox within Islam, mandating warfare against unbelievers and their ultimate either conversion to Islam or their incorporation into the Islamic State as inferiors denied equality of rights under the law, under a so-called contract of protection which institutionalizes discrimination against them but allows them to live within the parameters of that arrangement in peace provided that they do not say anything that is ins deemed insulting to Islam. If they do, then that contract of protection is immediately voided and their lives are forfeit. Now, this is traditional classical Islamic law. This is a universal element of Islamic teaching. It does not mean to say this, that every Muslim is pursuing this agenda any more than every Christian is working assiduously to love his enemies and to pray for those who persecute him. There is, in Islam, among Muslims, a huge spectrum of belief and of knowledge and of fervor. But the reality of the situation is that we are facing in the world today a global revivalist movement that is working within Islamic communities to revive the teachings of warfare and supremacism where they have become de-emphasized and to bring them to the forefront of Islamic practice for the 21st century and that that movement proceeds within Islamic communities on the basis of presenting itself as the true Islam and the pure Islam versus the watered-down cultural Islam that has allowed, in many areas of the world, these doctrines to fall by the wayside. However, as a prelude to the legal jihad about which we heard so much this morning, there has been a very successful effort to stigmatize any discussion of this and to brand any investigation of these questions and of this ideology as hatred in itself and as bigoted per se such that any decent person would know better than to pursue it. And that is perhaps aside from being a prelude to the legal jihad, because once you convince people that to speak in these ways and to investigate the motives and the goals of the jihadists as they themselves state them, once you convince people that that in itself is an act of hatred, then to take legal action against it is only natural and follows as a matter of course. But the effort to stigmatize this kind of discourse and to brand Islamorealism as Islamophobia has been going on for actually a far longer period than the effort to take action in courts and has been much more successful, primarily because it is played so skillfully 
upon American notions of decency, of freedom of speech, of civil rights. All these things, these notes have been sounded and very skillfully by groups like the Council on American-Islamic Relations and others. Probably the chief problem that we face in this conflict is that the, the ideology that fuels our enemies is a religious ideology. And that is extraordinarily difficult for Americans to deal with. A religious ideology is ipso facto good in most people's base core assumptions. Eisenhower said, a religion is good. It's good for a man to have a religion, and it doesn't matter which one, as long as he's got one. And the idea that there could possibly be in the world a religion, and not some kind of a new founded cult, but a well-established, venerable, one of the world's great religions, the idea that it could have within it elements that threaten those who are not within its fold is a concept that not only has never been considered in America before, but which threatens a to a tremendous degree people's core assumptions about the nature of our social fabric. And so there has been a huge effort to obfuscate this point and to invent concepts such as Islamism, Islamofascism, uh, various other phrases and terms radical Islam. I actually have no trouble with any of those terms because there is a distinction that needs to be made between Muslims who are actively fighting jihad warfare against us and Muslims who are just going about their ordinary lives and have no intention of waging jihad against anyone at any point in any way, shape, or form. That kind of a distinction needs to be made and insofar as those terms are used to make that distinction, then they're perfectly legitimate and useful. However, insofar as they are used to obfuscate, to confuse, to divert attention away from the reality of the deep rootedness of the ideology that is intent on destroying Western civilization at this point within Islamic law and tradition and theology, then they're just red herrings that keep us from understanding what we're dealing with and taking appropriate steps to defend ourselves. And now, of course, the increase in efforts at legal jihad is something that should surprise no one after this stigmatization effort has been so extraordinarily successful for so many years among conservatives as well as liberals. And so the organization of the Islamic Conference recently has taken a very strong stand against the film with which I expect that most of you are familiar, Fitna, the 15-minute film by the Dutch politician Geert Wilders, which deals with this same issue. And the organization of the Islamic Conference says this, Ekmeladine Isanolu, the Secretary General of the OIC, and the OIC, of course, is the 57-nation block that is now the largest single voting bloc in the United Nations, and thus can essentially set the agenda for the United Nations at this point. Ekmeladini Sanolu said, Muslims are being targeted by a campaign of defamation, denigration, stereotyping, intolerance, and discrimination. Defamation, denigration, stereotyping, intolerance, and discrimination. And the OIC called upon the European Union 
to block any further distribution of the film Fitna. Now, what is it in the film that actually constitutes anything remotely like defamation, denigration, stereotyping, intolerance, and discrimination? If you've seen it, then you know. It begins with chapter 8, verse 60 of the Quran, which directs Muslims to strike terror into the hearts of their enemies, the enemies of Allah and your enemies, it says. Now, that follows in the film with footage from 9-11 of the burning towers, and then you hear in voiceover a woman, a frantic call to 911, and the woman is saying, I'm trapped in these buildings, it's burning, they're burning up, and I'm, I'm going to die. And terror has been struck into her heart. Then, cut to Madrid, March 11th, 2004, the bombing's there, and we hear a phone message from a woman who is on the train. A bomb has gone off on the train, she too is terrified. So what does that have to do with the Quran verse? Perhaps Geert Wilders, as the OIC would like us to imagine, is making the connection between the terror sown on those days and the Quran verse in question, simply out of an intention of defaming Muslims, out of his racist hatred. But then the film shows us some speakers, Islamic imams, who are quoting exactly the same verse in service of saying we have to kill the Jews and Christians, we have to make war against them, and so on. Quoting other Islamic traditions also, including the notorious hadith, the tradition of Muhammad, in which Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, says the end times will not come until the Muslims kill the Jews and the Jews hide behind stones and trees and the stones and trees will cry out, O Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me, come and kill him. Now, that is a frankly genocidal vision, and that is a canonical hadith, a tradition that is accepted as authentic within mainstream Islam. The organization of the Islamic Conference, by stigmatizing that kind of reportage, which is all that is, as defamation, denigration, stereotyping, and the rest of it, is diverting attention away from the fact that these things do not originate with Geert Wilders. He did not write this verse in the Quran. He did not originate the Islamic tradition. He did not give the script to the Islamic preachers when they quoted the same verse. And so he has, he, the only responsibility he has is, to, is that he has called attention to the phenomena that is going on in the, all around the world today of Islamic preachers making use of this material in order to incite to violence. That's all he did. But the OIC diverts attention away from the reality of those preachers whom they have never complained about to Wilders as if he were the one originating this material. This is a recurring pattern. Al Arabiya, the uh, news channel that's a kind of a little sister to Al Jazeera, recently uh, wrote a denunciation of my biography of Muhammad, the truth about Muhammad, which is based on the earliest Islamic sources about the prophet of Islam. And in it, they said, the book is filled with lies and hate. For example, Spencer says that Muhammad said that he had been made victorious through terror. Well, Open up Sahih Bukhari, which is the Hadith collection, the collections of traditions of Muhammad that is considered most reliable by Muslims. 
in which every tradition that is within it, with the uh, exception of a very few, are considered to be authoritative for Muslim belief and practice by all the schools of Islamic law and theology. And you see Muhammad saying, not once but on several occasions, I have been made victorious through terror. So what we have here, obviously, is an attempt to divert attention away on a massive scale from the elements of Islamic theology that the jihadists are using to incite to violence. Now, this is dangerous in many, many ways. One of the most noteworthy ways in which this is damaging, aside from the free speech aspect, is that obviously it hinders our ability to understand what our enemy is doing and thus to take effective action against it. It is, in, in, in a sense, akin to the lawsuit that was uh, t uh, initiated by the Council on American-Islamic Relations and the six imams who were taken off a U.S. Airways flight uh, last year. The six imams were acting suspiciously in numerous ways, and passengers complained to flight attendants, saying they didn't want to fly with these guys who were acting in this way. And the imams were taken off the plane. They sued not only the airline, but also the passengers. There was congressional action to protect the passengers, and that's all to the good. But the, it was clear that the intent of the lawsuit was to inhibit people from reporting suspicious behavior. Because if you do, you'll get sued. And in the same way, trying to inhibit Islamo-realistic discourse is an attempt to allow that discourse to continue unimpeded and unexamined and uncriticized within the Islamic world and within Islamic communities in the West. Because if we speak about what is in their texts, and more importantly, not only what is in the texts, but how those texts are being used by jihadists today, well, then obviously we're bigoted and... Nobody wants to be a racist. Nobody wants to be a hate monger. Nobody wants to be bigoted. And so people prescind from examining this. And meanwhile, the only people who are continuing to talk this way are the Islamists themselves within their own communities. American publications, therefore, and anybody who has a voice in the public forum has to have the courage to begin to speak up against this and to refuse to pay lip service to these empty pieties about Islam being a religion of peace. There's a great deal of confusion on this issue, a great deal of confusion about all sorts of attendant issues. I've never seen anything that had such a power to cloud men's minds since the shadow. The, <laughs> the people say, if you speak about Islam as having something within it that is violent, something within Islamic tradition and teaching that is violent, then you must be saying that all Muslims are evil, or all Muslims are terrorists, or all Muslims favor terrorism. Well, actually, that's a very important question. Because if these teachings are indeed elements of traditional Islamic theology, it no more means that any Muslim is paying any attention to them than any religious person is paying attention to any element of his religion. But it does have important implications and important questions that ought to be investigated about the Muslims who are not actively waging jihad, 
Most of the time, when estimates are made about how many jihadists there are, and estimates range from 5%, 10% of the Islamic world, as frightening as those estimates are in themselves, because you're talking about 100 million, 150 million people who may be actively working to destroy the West. At the same time, the assumption is always that the other 900 million or the other billion or however many there are, are against it and are actively opposing that jihad activity. On what is that assumption based? And how secure can we possibly be if we do not even allow ourselves to examine the possibility that it may be that many of the Muslims who are not doing anything about it actually have no problem with it and will never lift a finger to oppose it. There are courageous Muslim reformers. There are Muslims who have the, the, the fortitude to speak out against this. And without exception, they are much more lauded among non-Muslims and have much greater following among non-Muslims than they do within the Islamic communities, even in the United States. The implications of that have to be examined. And the implications of allowing ourselves to continue to not speak about and not investigate these uncomfortable questions for fear of being stigmatized with names. I mean, I understand. The worst thing you can possibly be in America today is a racist. Nobody wants to even go close to that. But look, Islam is not a race. Ibrahim Hooper is no less a danger to the United States than his colleague Nihad Awad, even though Ibrahim Hooper is blonde-haired and blue-eyed. The, the, at a certain point, we have to make some distinctions and have the courage to make them and to stand by them and to speak about an ideology, which is what it is. Even Hooper himself has said publicly, Islam is an ideology, a political as well as a religious ideology. If we do not confront it, then it will only continue to advance. If we do not allow ourselves the uncomfortable necessity of making the proper diagnosis, then we will never cure the disease. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. One, one quick footnote on, on, on Fitna that struck me, and that is that, of course, this was, as Robert described, a film that links Islam with violence, and the response to that, as you know, was to say, we'll kill anybody involved with this film. And that always, you know, evokes a, a bit of a laugh and everyone says how ironic it is. I think we missed the point. I don't think it is ironic. I don't think that what's going on here is that those who threaten violence really want you to believe that, no, no, Islam is a very tolerant and peace-loving religion. I think what they are saying instead is, we agree with Wilders. That's not what this is about. The question is whether or not you have the right to criticize your betters. And we're telling you, you don't. This is not a disagreement over substance. It's a disagreement over what you, infidels, have the right to say about those who are superior to you. There's no irony here. There's no disagreement here. They're not trying to say we're tolerant. I just think that's a point that's, that's, somewhat, that's, that's somewhat missed. I'm going to go. Yes, sir. Yeah. I think it is. No? no? Somebody can. Um, yeah. 
push that on or how about the other ones? Yeah, speak loudly or, yeah. If I, if I could just add for a second that cl what Cliff is saying is very true and very important. And the goal, remember, of the Islamic jihadists is to impose Islamic law over the world in which non-Muslims must live in a situation of chastened subservience in which they do not dare to speak critically about anything regarding Islam. And so that is exactly the agenda we see being put forward today. It is only through a process of projection um, that we uh, impute to the OIC, for example, the idea that they're against religious intolerance. They're not. They never say a word about intolerance of Christians, of Jews, uh, apostate Muslims, or anybody else like that. I'm going to now ask each member of the panel one question, which they can feel free to answer or ignore, um, and, then, and rather comment on the subject and Robert's presentation of that. I want to start with Iman Warwick. And I'd like you, Iman, if you would just talk a little bit about the experience of those who, like you, uh, dissent from the orthodox and the authorized uh, interpretation uh, of Islam. Uh, I remember when I first, uh, when I, my first book came out, Why I'm Not a Muslim, in 1995, I sent it to uh, the Bangladeshi dissident, Taslima Nazreen, and she was very excited by the book. She actually came to see me and stayed with me in my house in France, and she said to me, um, uh, have you had a fatwa on you? And I said, no. And she was most disappointed. She says, it's such a damn good book. I don't understand why you haven't had a fatwa. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it's a sort of Nobel Prize for us. Um, I um, have not, oddly enough, had uh, any written th uh, threats. Uh, people. More often, I've written, I've had letters, especially from women from Islamic countries, um, thanking me for, for defending their rights and so on. Um, more recently, I've had, um, I've been put on various death lists following a, a declaration that I signed, a manifesto that I signed along with um, Salman Rushdie, Ayan Hershiali, the, the French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy, and so on. Um, so I, I'm told also that since the publication, oddly enough, of my book on Edward Said, uh, various uh, television channels in the Arab world have taken to denouncing me. They seem to take offense at, at uh, me attacking their, their idol. Um, but uh, I've been t very inconsistent about, about my security. Um, uh, sometimes I worry, sometimes I don't worry. Often I've tried not to be uh, interviewed on, on television, but in, re in recent, recent years, last two years, I've decided that if I wanted my ideas to get out to the, to the world, I had to really defend them in public, uh, even if it meant being televised. So um, I, I've been lucky in, in some sense, but I. My friend and colleague, like Wafan Sultan, have had to go into hiding. I think uh, Stephen knows more about the case than I do. Um, since you've uh, you've turned it over to Steve, let, let me uh, let me um, give Steve a, a few minutes to, to comment on that, and um, and and also to talk about the infiltration uh, of this sort of political correctness of this sort of orthodoxy um, in the law enforcement community, which you which you follow fairly closely. Um, Our office in, in Jordan um, found a publication the other day that had a uh, full-page ad called 
Wanted for Justice. In it were pictures of nine um, heretics or apostates or uh, anti-Muslim uh, enemies of Islam, including Wafa Sultan. I have it here. Um, I gave it to the FBI, and they promptly disregarded it. Um, Wafa Sultan has now gone into hiding in uh, part of the United States. The first time um, an American has been forced to go into hiding in some years. Um, I remember back in 1994 when I first started getting into this business, uh, when I produced a film called Jihad in America, and um, a month before the film came out, um, just an anecdote here, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, which is a Hamas front, or a front for Hamas, um, issued a press release saying, uh, mosque burns down in Brooklyn, semicolon, PBS set to air film against Islam. So projecting the notion that a film that about to be aired in a month was the cause of this mosque being burnt down, which turned out to have been burnt down by someone in the mosque. And then after the film was aired, um, a reporter came to me and said, we hear that CARE is going to sue you. So I said, no, I, what's your comment? And I said, I want to congratulate them. That's a step up from their usual tactics. Um, and um, I, I, I think um, CARE's mission has unfortunately been adopted by almost every other Islamic group in the United States. Uh, the Islamist groups, of which constitute the mainstream hierarchy of the Islamic institutions, which is to play the victim card and claim it's Islamophobia, not Islamic terrorism. That's infected law enforcement and the government in, in, a, in an amazing way. Um, for example, um, a program operating out of Northeastern University called the, Partnership, uh, the Open Society Program, funded by George Soros, was uh, contracted by the FBI, of all places, to teach uh, the FBI that it was not Islamic terrorism that was the problem since 9-11, but Islamophobia. Um, and since that time, um, the FBI, together with the Department of Justice, together with the State Department, but particularly it's, 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 it's incriminating and, and especially infuriating to see the Federal Bureau of Investigation headquarters uh, produce uh, and bring in cultural sensitivity training seminars that teach that jihad means peace and love, that there's no such thing as Islamic terrorism, there's no such thing as Islamic fundamentalism, uh, that uh, this is all part of a campaign by uh, Zionist crusaders. Um, and to see the FBI uh, official headquarters adopt this, in contrast to the field which really opposes this, is, is quite amazing because it affects even the course of their investigations. When the head of the FBI meets with an organization whose leader is subsequently indicted and convicted as a member of Al-Qaeda, um, it sends a message to younger FBI members that this organization sort of remains sacrosanct. Um, and so there was a meeting earlier this year with the FBI director um, and several Muslim groups. And on the agenda, were all the usual complaints that uh, Muslims are being discriminated against and uh, there's profiling at airports, which there's definitively no, no profiling at all. Um, and um, the list went down and then finally it came down to the, the final point of discussion and we retained this document of freedom of information. The final point came down to how, what, how are we going to teach um, Muslims 
I'm, I'm sorry, FBI agents, um, uh, cultural sensitivity because FBI agents uh, take trips to the Holocaust Museum. So the answer was they were going to bring them to a center in Virginia, which is the largest propaganda distributor of Wahhabist uh, materials in the world in the United States. Um, that was the FBI's response, the Adams Center, profiled in Nina Shea's uh, Freedom House report. Um, the last thing on, on the agenda was the fact that the FBI agreed to establish Muslim youth camps which I think violates the Constitution, if I'm not sure. But some of you lawyers may be more familiar with the separation of church and state. But um, the fact that no discussion at all emerged in this entire two-hour meeting about the need for these groups to renounce Islamic terrorism, to stop uh, dissuading their followers from cooperating with the FBI, because in every website, you see these groups saying, don't talk to the FBI. And the more they do that, the more the FBI comes and begs, <laughs> begs them to talk to them. There is a legitimization of these organizations that unfortunately crowds out genuine moderates, like Zudi Jasser and others, who deserve to be recognized and deserve the cooperation um, and, and empowerment of the FBI. All too often, you know, in the 1990s, um, the people invited to the White House were all of the Al-Qaeda and Hamas supporters. Um, and in an amazing development, um, the, probably the most amazing development in the last 20 years was the arrest of Abdul Rahman Alamudi, who is head of the American Muslim Council and who was brought to the uh, uh, FBI, honored by the CIA, sent abroad by the State Department dozens of times in the 90s, featured, invited by the White House in the 90s, new, dozens of times to come to uh, <coughs> meetings and iftar dinners. And then suddenly he was arrested in 2003 at Heathrow Airport uh, with $340,000 in cash going off to Syria. And when he was asked by British customs officials where he got the money, he said he didn't know. He said he just found it at his hotel room in London, <laughs> which means we should all stay at the Intercontinental in London. Um, and, um, it, Subsequently, as the unraveling of his story came out, it, it emerged that he had been an Al-Qaeda and Hamas courier for the previous decade. All the while, he had fooled the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, Congress, Secret Service, every single national law enforcement organization. How could this be possible? That's what I asked, especially since the warning signs were there back in 1995 and 94. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't learned from this. And now I'm involved in trying to get the FBI to appear on camera for a documentary I'm doing. And the response from the FBI headquarters was that I'm an enemy of the FBI. And, um, and uh, I said, well, so you're not going to speak to me, but why does the FBI director give interviews to Al Jazeera? So the response was, well, they're more balanced than you are. Uh, um, Look, I, uh, the, the fact is that uh, as it, every single person here on this panel has experienced in the previous panel, the, the whole notion of suppressing free speech uh, extends beyond just Islamophobia the, uh, in journalism, which is a major culprit in, in being uh, accessories to the suppression of free speech. But law enforcement itself um, and the government has succumbed as winning accessories to partnering with radical Islamic groups without demanding any type of reciprocity, of, con of condemning Hamas, Hezbollah, of telling their followers, 
stop dissing the FBI. I mean, we have tape recordings of care dinners where um, they honor speakers who compare the FBI to Nazis. And they're FBI members in the audience. And they just sit there and take it. And um, I doubt very much you'd see FBI people attending David Duke dinners or John Gambino dinners unless they were undercover. These guys weren't undercover. Um, the last thing I'd like to say is, is that um, the, one of the big issues, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really Hollywood, the media, and law enforcement that's largely responsible for the suppression of free speech, for the uh, promotion of Islamophobia as this incredible racist movement, which is a, 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 a fictional movement, um, and for the, the lack of any uh, of willingness of, of people to speak out. The New York Times has become sort of an appendage to Hamas um, and in its reporting. Um, and um, I, I understand there's a lot of Class B stock available for purchase if any investor is. Um, I was recently on Hannity and Combs and, and uh, by the way, they don't, the military doesn't need to do waterboarding. All they need, need to do is subject a detainee to Alan Combs for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I, I, we were discussing uh, uh, David Horowitz's campaign on Islamofascism week, and he, Combs contended that Islamofascism term was, was racist. So I said, let's drop the term Islamofascism. How about the term Islamic terrorism? I, he said, definitely, that's a racist term. You're stigmatizing all Muslims. How about, I then said, how about the term Islamic fundamentalism? Definitely, a racist term. You're stigmatizing all Muslims. How about the term Islamic Jihad? There I got him, because he said, that's a racist term. I said, Alan, that's the term the group calls itself. They invented it. <laughs> um, that's the absurd level that we've gotten to. But, but in practical terms, I mean, these all have effects because if you don't discuss it in the media and if the FBI uh, honors organizations, I mean, an FBI leader, his name will remain unnamed uh, to protect the guilty, said to me once, Steve, you can't generalize about all Wahhabis. Some Wahhabis are very moderate, <laughs> which, which, which is the antithesis of reality. Um, so there, there is a major problem in this country and this country uh, has succumbed, uh, ironically, even under this administration, to appeasing these Islamist groups and law enforcement, unfortunately, from the FBI headquarters. I know I want to make a, distingu a distinguish between the headquarters and the field, because the field really objects to this, um, to local law enforcement, like Sheriff Lee Baca in California, have emerged as these collaborators with CARE and MPAC and ISNA. Um, I mean, the irony, the last point, is that ISNA, Islamic Society of North America, and CARE were listed and designated as two unindicted co-conspirators in the Hamas case, in the HLF case or the Hamas case last fall. Suddenly, two months later, the Justice Department, which listed ISNA as the uh, unindicted co-conspirator, emerged as a co-sponsor of the annual ISNA conference. Um, and um, DHS actually had a booth at the conference recruiting agents right next to the Hizbah Tahrir booth calling for an Islamic caliphate and the destruction of the United States. Um, so we've, we've gotten to absurd levels and no one's willing in the administration to take the bull by the horns. And uh, unless somebody does and says enough of this nonsense, um, the Islamists are going to continue to win. Thank you.
just another quick footnote. I mentioned that Ivan Warwick's most recent book is Defending the West, a critique of Edward Said. And Ivan mentioned that in the Middle East, Edward Said is, 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 is idealized. Uh, it's also true, as many of you know, but you should know, that on virtually every American campus, Middle East Studies Department, the Saidian interpretation, the Saidian view, Saidian pseudo-scholarship is what predominates. And anyone who tries to question the Saidian, Saidian orthodoxy um, will have a very difficult time getting tenure. Uh, let me go next to Frank, and uh, since Steve has talked about the, the law enforcement community and how these ideas are being promulgated and how uh, dissident ideas are being suppressed, maybe you'll talk about it a little bit in terms of the government and not least the Pentagon. Well, actually, that's a question I'm going to probably ignore <laughs> rather than address directly, but let me, let me touch on a couple of points that relate to it, I hope. Um, one, one on the... Uh, the, the, the personal experience I've had with the suppression of information about Islam uh, was, as some of you know, uh, as a result of an experience I had last year as a co-executive producer of a film paid for by you, and I'm very grateful, by the way, um, through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and then suppressed by the Public Broadcasting Service, which was supposed to air it as part of a series called America at a Crossroads. The film was called Islam versus Islamists, Voices from the Muslim Center. And it turned out that PBS and Robert McNeil considered our sympathetic treatment of some of the Muslims Robert has addressed, uh, I call them anti-Islamist Muslims, was unfair to the Islamists. And they wanted to really rewrite the film, have it redone, so as to have more balance and more sympathetic treatment to all those good Wahhabis that Steve just referred to. And you know, we said no. And they said, OK, you won't be able to air your film. In the event, um, fortunately, one of the affiliates, the Oregon Public Broadcasting Service, did make it available to the PBS system. 70% or so of the affiliates did broadcast it, usually at 10 o'clock at night with no publicity. And, and as a result, not many people saw it that way. But Fox, I will give them credit, Fox News ran specials built around not only that film, but another hour of film that we had made uh, for a total of two one and hour and a half long specials. So I think as a result of the controversy that was engendered by this suppression of information about what's going on inside Islam, a great many more American eyeballs were actually exposed to this, uh, this material than would otherwise been the case. But one of the aspects of the film was the story about the Danish cartoons. And we had a very interesting interview with one of the Islamists involved in that controversy, an imam in Denmark by the name of Abu Laban. Abu Laban acknowledged to my colleague Martin Burke that he had actually inseminated into the cartoons that had been published by, among others, Ezra Levant, um, a number of images, including a, an individual with pig's ears and nose, that actually never appeared as part of the cartoons, that in fact referred to a feast of the pig in southern France that had nothing more to do with uh, Muhammad or Islam than it had to do with you know, uh, the price of beef in Chicago. It was, it was simply unrelated and calculated to inflame the Muslim world. 
It was about that controversy that Wafa Sultan, who we've heard spoken of, was on Al Jazeera recently, describing how when Muslims behave in a way that creates the image of violence, let alone, as Robert has indicated, the conviction that it is their right to engage in violence against the rest of us, and by the way, against anti-Islamist Muslims as well. The Wafa Sultan said, how would you expect people to portray adherence to these, uh, these Islamo-fascist views, except with you know, bombs under the turbans and so on? Well, in short order, she was responded to on Al Jazeera, where this debate took place, by an individual by the name of Sheikh Karadawi. Sheikh Karadawi, as you may know, is one of the prominent fixtures on Al Jazeera, one of the leading Islamo-fascist ideologues, one of those who is most aggressively involved in promoting this sort of jihadist notion of, uh, of the inevitability of the clash of civilizations and the ultimate triumph of Islam in the form of the caliphate imposing Sharia, a brutally repressive theocratic code on all of us. And Karadawi proceeded to hand down what amounted to a death sentence to Wafa Sultan, essentially saying she has slandered Islam, the Prophet, Allah, and that is interpreted under Sharia by anyone who subscribes to its, uh, particularly its violent tenets, uh, as a capital offense. Hence, in America, ladies and gentlemen, this woman is in hiding today, her family with her, her husband unable to go to work lest he be followed home to their hiding place, and they all be killed. This isn't the Middle East. This isn't Europe. This isn't even Canada. This is the United States of America. And I consider that to be evidence of the sort of Fabian encroachment of this Sharia in our country. It is manifesting itself in this instance as the suppression of speech, but it is just one manifestation. And let me just quickly, if I may, Cliff, without getting to the Defense Department, which has some of the same problems that Steve has talked to, including the banishment of one of the most competent, knowledgeable, and articulate authorities in the entire United States government about Sharia about the traditions that Robert has talked about, from whence many of these horrible practices emanate, namely Stephen Coughlin. Stephen Coughlin, as my friend Claudia Rosette probably will be able to explain even better, is a victim of a purge from the Defense Department at the hands of a fellow who is an admirer of, if not an agent of, the Islamic Society of North America, one of those Muslim Brotherhood front organizations as identified by the Justice Department, one of those unindicted co-conspirators in a terrorism conspiracy trial, a man who today still, despite Claudia's best efforts, still sits at the right hand of the number two man in the Defense Department, Gordon England, as his official responsible for outreach 
to the Muslim community and guess which part of that community he reflexively continues to reach out to, the Islamic Society of North America. But let me just come back to Karadawi for a moment because Karadawi is one of the Islamists that, as I say, is enormously influential in the Muslim world. He is also a Sharia advisor in several of the financial institutions promoting something called Sharia-compliant finance. Why is this important, ladies and gentlemen? It is important because today, Islamists like Karadawi are sitting in the corporate headquarters, or at least advising at approximately board level, many of the major investment houses and commercial banks of the West. Increasingly, those a few miles down the island from here, or even blocks. This is a phenomenon much like, as Brooke Goldstein very correctly put it, the idea of libel lawfare. This is another instrument of jihad against the West, financial jihad, the likes of Karadawi call it. And we have this spectacle, ladies and gentlemen, of billions of dollars now, by some estimates, 800 billions of dollars being invested in so-called Sharia-compliant instruments, an increasing number of which are now going to be made available through Western financial institutions in this country, including some of those of the federal government, like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. In fact, I, met, I wonder how many of you know that there is a Dow Jones Islamic Index, or a Standard & Poor's Islamic Index, or an HSBC Islamic Index, all of which have, as their authorities, Islamofascists like Karadawi. In fact, the head of, or one of the members of the Dow Jones Islamic Index is a man by the name of Yusami. Sheikh Yusami has urged violent jihad as an obligation against the West in books that he has written and speeches that he makes. It is unimaginable that investors are not being told who are these Sharia advisors? What is their agenda? Let alone what Sharia is. In the way or in the manner that in any other aspect of our financial transactions would be obligatory. So we have no due disclosure, no due diligence, no transparency, no accountability, no good governance. We have, in other words, ladies and gentlemen, suppression of information, we have encroaching or Fabian Sharia, and we have a mortal peril to the capitalist system happening under our noses. And so when you compound what we've already been told and what we're about to be told, it's another piece of the soft jihad that is at work in the West and in the United States as well, and it must be fought at every turn. Thank you. Uh, you can read about all these issues in the alternative media, but in the mainstream media, 
there is a tentativeness about all this um, that I'm going to ask Claudia to, to, to address. Uh, but also in the realm of full disclosure, I spent the, the longest uh, part of my career as a New York Times uh, reporter. And um, I was for a while in, uh, in a correspondent in Africa. And I remember writing a fairly long and involved memo to my editors saying there's a really good probably magazine story here um, on a theme that's in uh, Samuel Huntington's books, and that is the fact, and this was long before 9-11, that all Islam's borders are bloody. Um, I don't know when I have ever gotten a more emphatic no, we're not going to even discuss this as a possible story. No. And I guess that, that gets me to, to my question for you, Claudia, which I've sort of outlined. You know, is the, is it, is the problem censorship from above, or is it self-censorship, or is it now a combination of the two within the, uh, the mainstream media? Thank you for a good question and for marvelous presentations all around with which I thoroughly agree. Um, it's a mix and it's kind of the final point in this little thing I prepared so let me just work up to it uh, because I'm going to try and give you in part a more global picture of what I've run into. Uh, I spent years reporting abroad and my first encounter with what we're talking about today came in the spring of 2001 shortly before September 11th. Uh, in those days, I was working for the Wall Street Journal, which was across the street from the World Trade Center. And I was filling in, among other things, I was filling in for a TV critic. I was writing columns about TV shows. And there was this PBS presentation, a documentary on Islam. Sorry. Uh, PBS, I was filling in as a TV critic at the Wall Street Journal in 2001. And uh, one of the shows I picked to review, it looked interesting, was a do PBS documentary on Islam. It had been made at great expense with the cooperation of, t of studios in Iran, and it featured wonderful shots of camels uh, silhouetted in the desert and bells and you know, minarets. Uh, but it stopped 500 years short of the present day. And it described this sort of magnificent advancing religion civilization and then kind of left off <laughs> a few centuries ago and ended. And there we were. And I called up Daniel Pipes at that point and said, uh, I don't understand. There are things that seem to me to be missing here. And he filled in a few facts for me. And I wrote a review saying, you know, interesting thing, but this strangely reverent, uncritical picture of what is a complicated scene. Uh, I came into my office just after that review ran. Now, I've had a lot of insults. You, you're a journalist, you get a lot of insults no matter what you do, but uh, I've had insults from crooks in the Far East. I've had insults from gangsters in Russia. I had never heard anything like the poisonous messages that were on my voicemail at the Wall Street Journal that week. Uh, they were offensive is a good word, disturbing enough, so that I wasn't sure, you know, I, I thought, well, people are upset, okay, they're very, very upset. I saved them on my voicemail, thinking if anything happens to me, you know, somebody can listen to them, and took a few notes, and a few months later, all records I had made of those were destroyed because across the street, the World Trade Center collapsed on September 11th, and Dow Jones was blown out of its offices for a year. Uh, Fast forward to 2007, where having gone on to do reporting that has led me more and more into these subjects, 
with the backing of the FDD, with, for whom I am most grateful. Uh, I read about this book that had come out called Alms for Jihad, which there's been some talk about this morning. And I was actually less interested at that point in the fact that the, the whole defamation thing was going on than in, I actually wanted to read the book. I read it, it would describe this global web of charities that had been subverted for terrorist uses and things going on in Sudan at a period that intersected with things I was looking at. I began looking at the book. I, I found it on eBay. The price had already gone up to something like 60 bucks at that point because they were recalling and pulping every copy they could find. I ordered it from A Books. Uh, I waited, and then I got this notice that, in fact, they couldn't get a copy at all. I called up the local library. I couldn't get any copy. I finally called one of the authors and spent about an hour on the phone with him explaining who I was and that I wasn't a crank and that I wasn't trying to get his book, which at that point was hundreds of dollars if you were going to order it. And he finally agreed to send me one of his very precious remaining copies of the actual book. Uh, I was to be allowed to Xerox this so I could read it. And then I had to send it over to another reporter who was waiting eagerly to also get it. This was the year 2007 in the United States, okay? And I am looking at, that's what had to go on in order simply to read a book in which the, what had caused all this, as you heard earlier this morning, uh, was one piece of a large and important picture. Um, now, What's happening to do anything about this? Well, I, uh, I want to go on to sort of the Orwellian distortions that keep creeping in where you find yourselves, yourself in these moments where sort of things that seem too absurd to be true suddenly become true with a horrifying crash. Yeah. People actually die. In, you know, uh, terrible things really happen. And following on... Robert Spencer's excellent description of the sort of Orwellian distortions that keep going on. I want to turn to another realm without which no discussion of freedom-threatening, terror-enabling, dangerous uh, doctrine would be complete, and that is the United Nations, which I've spent a lot of time on in recent years. And Ezra Levant described earlier how sort of these crazy, these attempts to suppress free, spree free speech at the behest of jihadis. It goes from Europe to Canada to here. Well, actually, it's also got this enormous amplifier called, right, right here in New York, paid for by your tax money in great part, called the United Nations. And uh, it is doing things that I think a lot of Americans don't follow that closely, but they're extremely destructive. And they spread these sort of, the kind of thing that Ezra described this morning, multiply it many times, translate it to societies that don't have the basic tolerance and appreciation of freedoms that Canada and the United States do. This is what the UN is broadcasting uh, into places. Um, when FITNA came out, I, I could have picked thousands of examples. I picked a recent one. Uh, what did the Secretary General of the United Nations do to defend Geert Wilder's freedom of speech? This is the UN that's supposed to defend free societies. It was founded to do that. Uh, he stepped up to the mic. This is Ban Ki-moon who has not, who doesn't take time to denounce the 
Niagara of hate speech that pours out of the Middle East on government stations and all sorts of channels every day. What did he say? He had something very specific to say about Fitna and Wilders. He said, there is no justification for hate speech or incitement to violence. In other words, Ban Ki-moon, movie critic, has now decided exactly what this movie is about. Uh, the right of free expression is not at stake here. If that sounds sort of like what Ezra Levant described with the Canadian Human Rights Commission he's been tangling with, well, the UN has the big mama of all human rights commissions. This is the way it works. It is Orwellian. Uh, he went on to acknowledge the efforts of the Dutch government to stop the broadcast. I think that means he supports them. Um, and we must also recognize the et cetera. Okay, now who else steps up to the plate with him? Well, the UN is just riddled with organizations that operate worldwide and characters. He had a whole accompanying cast. It was all conveniently summed up in one statement they put out that day. Uh, there's something called the Alliance of Civilizations, which is supposed to be bridge building. It all sounds very nice, the alliance of, you know, and fostering understanding, and Turkey and Spain run it right now. Well, actually, this is the progeny of an initiative of Iran in 19, proposed in 1998, embraced by Kofi Annan in 1999, which went forward first as the Dialogue of Civilizations, and then morphed into this thing called the Alliance of Civilizations. You don't have to go deep into its website to hit handy links to CARE and all the other places we've been talking about today, uh, or to hit the Organization of the Islamic Conference or the Arab League, which are the main players in this outfit. Then, of course, there was the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Louise Arbor, who piped up to say that she joined the condemnation of, the fitna, of, of fitna, and uh, was understood people offended by its message. And then, of course, there are always the three UN Special Rapporteurs who also issued a joint statement. And on it goes. This all sounds like bureaucratic nonsense, but this stuff is what's getting put out by, an, by the United Nations, by a place that actually does serve, as someone pointed it out earlier, the place where the organization of the Islamic Conference has captured the largest voting bloc. And they do have effects far beyond. In New York, they get drowned up by the noise. In countries where they put in significant sums of money, your money usually, uh, they get attention. And they have a considerable broadcast propaganda machine. Um, and this is another one of the things that's going on where the whole drumbeat is not to actually defend free speech. It's to talk about freedom of expression is not at issue, and then go on to tell people that they'd better shut up if they're going to build alliances between civilizations, foster peace, and produce understanding. Um, there's lots more I can say, and I'm also happy to talk about the Pentagon if anyone wants to hear more about Hesham Islam and Stephen Coughlin and what, why they keep, a, keep somebody who's engaged in outreach to terror-linked Muslim groups and can somebody who's trying to say, you really need to pay attention to facts. But I want to sort of get to Cliff's question and just say that as journalists, the people who are supposed to be writing and informing you of all this, there are a couple of things that I think come into play. One is the media is... Uh, <coughs> It sort of uh, prides itself on being a, an intellectual crowd that involves a liberal bias and that involves all the multicultural everything that you usually hear about, so <laughs> allow a certain amount for that. But then there's this, a much more uh, problematic 
piece of it. And that is when a reporter sits down to write a story, there are calculations you make about how much effort is going to be worth whatever's finally going to come out in print. And there's a point where you have to believe pretty powerfully and deeply. If you look and you think, I could get sued. I could get tied up. I could end up unable to write anything because I'm going to be spending all my time with lawyers. I'm going to have to spend so much time, even though I can see something and document it, I'm going to have to, have to spend so much time making sure that every small thing could not possibly offend somebody who, or if it does, that I already have the reams of documentation ready. This goes far beyond. You know, a reporter's normal concern, my normal concern, is that is not to mislead the readers. You actually don't write with the first thing in your mind being whether or not you offend the people you're writing about. You write trying to convey the truth. <laughs> you write something where you can substantiate what you've said. But the barrier that is set is much higher than that with this. It's something where you better be prepared to go through what Rachel has gone through if you're going to write about Bin Mahfouz. And for people who work on the staffs of newspapers, they're under pressure, they have shareholders, they have owners, they have bottom lines, they have limits on their time, they have many, many stories they can write. And I will guarantee you, there are good reporters who have looked at good stories and wanted to do them, and then calculated that if they did, it simply wouldn't pay off. The news in the end is a business, it's a private business in a free society, and that's when it, that is exactly the calculus that has been quite effective, I think. Let me just give you one quick example in my own experience. If you're doing something like trying to track the money, you end up, it's really a help when you can look at, when you can say to your readers, hey, the following guy was indicted on charges of money laundering, and then uh, court documents say he had cash spread across his hotel room, and they found him with it. Readers understand that. But when you have to go through enormously elaborate locutions to explain this sort of web of connections, which you can see something is clearly dirty, but you have to explain a plate of spaghetti. Again, that's a story where it's very, very hard to make it fly. I mean, um, I, uh, one quick concrete example, and I'll just try and wrap this up with one last thing I want to point out to you. Um, there's a terror-based organization, a terror-designated organization based in Lugano, Switzerland that became of some interest to me years ago. It was kept turning up in stories I was writing. I went there. I, I looked at the locked door and went and tried to track down things to do with it. Well, this organization was linked to Al-Qaeda and was listed as such a terror financier organization just after September 11th by the U.S. Treasury. A few months ago, they took it off the designated terror list. Suddenly, all this work you've done showing all these terror connections is linked to what? You know, some office in Switzerland. So I called up the Treasury and I said, well, does that mean that everything you said a few years ago was not true? Were they never linked to terror? Oh, Treasury says, sure they were. Yeah, absolutely. Everything we said was true. It's just they've said they won't do it anymore. <laughs> Okay, whatever you want to make of that, explaining that in a story is a lot more complicated than just saying a terror-designated organization on the Treasury list. And this is the kind of thing that goes on. And when you get into things like Saudi money trails, I can point you to a, 
on Pajamas Media blog, I have a post I put up early this morning on a very interesting court hearing coming up in Lower Manhattan tomorrow involving Osama bin Laden, secrets of Osama bin Laden's trust fund, and will the judge actually rule for discovery that would let us see something? Uh, but you have to. You have to write it so carefully to steer clear of these tripwires. Um, and here's the, the, the recommendation I would make, because in covering totalitarian countries and dictatorships and the rest of it over many years, you come to recognize patterns by which repressive things are done. And that's exactly what's being described here. You isolate people and you silence them. And I can't stress enough the importance of something like this conference, of keeping in touch, of finding some way to communicate with people, compiling lists, do anything, so you can see how broad this is, who's involved, who's getting hit, who's what. The problem with people who love freedom is they're really bad at forming organizations and clubs and collective things, okay? We like to go off and do our own thing. And this is something where it actually matters to stick together. Uh, here's how much it matters. I was, this is, again, you can find, you could spend the year just pulling out these examples, but here's something that just jumped out at me. Thanks to the, some of the wonderful things unearthed constantly by Steve Emerson's group. Uh, it's a story out of, about the trial of, uh, these six South Florida men who are accused of plotting to blow up buildings in Chicago and Miami, and the jury has been deliberating. I don't know if they've reached a verdict yet. Okay, the jury's been out. Well, a few days ago, April 2nd, they sent out a note. They wanted to the, an answer to the following question. Is it against the law, the jurors asked the judge, to swear an oath of allegiance to Al-Qaeda? They weren't sure. They, they had seen videos of these men swearing oaths of allegiance to Al-Qaeda, and they weren't sure if this was against the law. That's going on in the same country where to get a copy of Alms for Jihad, I had to call the author and have him FedEx me the book and Xerox the book and send it to the next person, like it's some as dot the old Soviet yeah. Union or Pony Express. Uh, this is a really big problem we've got. Thank you. Let me, um, if someone's got the mic, I'll open this up now for uh, questions um, from you. Why don't you just uh, you know, work your way, start in the back and work your way forward. Thanks, uh, Andy Boston, uh, author. Um, Robert, uh, as is his wont, uh, framed, I think, what's the most provocative and important question which is this idea, what's, what's below the surface of the five, 10% hardcore jihadists? And I just wanted to share some data with you that was revealed about a year ago this time, which suggests uh, that the problem is, is, is actually gargantuan. Uh, University of Maryland uh, survey uh, done across going west to east, Morocco, Egypt, uh, Pakistan, Indonesia, 4,400 Muslims, were examined in their native languages, face-to-face -face by the surveyor. Uh, two of the most important questions were asked. Uh, uh, the desire for strict application, and the word was strict application of Sharia law, question number one, and the desire for recreation or creation of a transnational caliphate. 
Both of those responses, they were not exactly concordant and overlapping, but both of those responses to suggest the internal validity of these questions were, were answered affirmatively by 65% of the sample. So my question is, when we get into these issues of terminology, et cetera, what do we call such people who answer affirmatively that they want strict application of Sharia law in a way where the question is clearly understood, and they want the recreation of a transnational caliphate? Of course, as Steve pointed out, uh, Andrew, uh, you can't generalize about extremists. Some are moderate. <laughs> Do you, you want to handle that or respond to that? Well, as far as nomenclature goes, there has never been any attempt to name those people at all. Uh, that's, I think, the part of the difficulty in this uh, entire struggle is that even if we talk about Islamic jihadists, people ordinarily assume them to be those who are actively taking up arms. But it recalls to mind a conversation I had with a very prominent American convert to Islam who is well known in the United States as a moderate Muslim. I won't name him because I'm sure he would not want me to. But uh, I was talking to him about this and, and I said, look, I understand that not every Muslim supports jihad activity. And he said, listen to me, every Muslim supports jihad activity. Most of them are, don't just, just don't want to get off their couches and do something about it. And the idea that a Muslim would actually reject the theology and ideology behind jihad and behind Islamic supremacism is really very remote and unlikely because it is a mainstream and unanimous tradition among the orthodox schools of Islam. And so the uh, reality of the people who passively favor this cannot be denied or minimized and needs to be addressed. And they needs to be named, but uh, I don't know, maybe we should hold a contest. I, I would just add this footnote to that, and that, that. There are millions and millions of moderate Muslims. They're entirely irrelevant to what we're talking about. Um, by definition, a moderate Muslim is one who's not involved in these struggles. What, we, what is necessary and what is in short supply are reformist Muslims, genuine reformist Muslims. There are some. Zudi Jasser has been mentioned, Irshad Manji, who works with, uh, with there my group. There might be as many as ten. There may, <laughs> it takes, it, but of course it takes tremendous courage to be a moderate Muslim. Yes. It takes courage to do it here, increased courage to do it in Europe. And if you do it in the Middle East, you're probably dead in a very short time. Let's go ahead and just work your way down a little bit. Hi, Elizabeth Powers. I was very interested in Robert Spencer's uh, description of the institutional history of uh, warfare and suprematism and so forth. I'm a chair of a seminar at Columbia University on 18th century European culture, and I've spent the past year with a series of talks devoted to the institutionalization of free speech in the West in the early, since the early modern period. And it seems to me that we're in a slight rut by, constant, uh, by concentrating on Islam. Might, because it seems when we speak about free speech, conservatives and liberals alike speak of it as if it's a human right, whereas it's really been institutionalized in the West. And it might be to our benefit 
to concentrate on our own institutional traditions. I think that this is what a lot of Muslims come to this country for, for these freedoms. And we have to be explicit to them what they are, those freedoms are about, including freedom of speech. And too many intellectuals are speaking as if uh, human rights are just something that was given to us by God, whereas you, really uh, they've been fought for by previous generations. I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that's a very important point, because uh, freedom of speech is, is not something that has been a universal human right or has been understood as such at all. But it has been something that was arrived at in the West precisely as a response to the dilemma of how to deal with people of differing views who differ in good conscience with one another about the nature of the good, about how to pursue a, the, a, a good life, and what a, how society ought to be constituted. And it was very clear that you have two alternatives. Ultimately, once you clear away all the uh, uh, semi-half uh, measures and everything else, you have this. You either is, have a supreme ideology to which all must pay obeisance whether or not they subscribe to it, or you have a society in which we put up with being offended by somebody else's views and do not do violence to that person as a result. And one of the great failings that we have in this response to the global jihad today is that we have not articulated the value of that pluralistic vision to the Islamic world and have not had the courage, the moral courage, to stand up and to say that we are actively opposing the values that Islamic Sharia law represents, including the infringement on the freedom of conscience, and we are opposing, in principle, the idea of installing this ide any, any particular ideology as supreme over all the others, such that we all have to recognize it in some way. The, uh, the problem that we have with the ideology of Islam is that it is inherently supremacist, at least in its traditional form. There may be some form of Islam that is invented or devised in the future that would not be supremacist, but the only way we're ever going to get Muslims to reject supremacism, even in the West, is to confront it, to call it what it is, and to challenge American Muslim groups to renounce those doctrines. And, you know, in the Cold War, we had Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, and they were immense sources of hope to people like Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov and all the others behind the Iron Curtain who saw that there were some people somewhere who were standing for a vision of society that was different from the one they were suffering under. But there is no voice in the world today that is doing that in the Islamic world and saying we are offering you an alternative vision for society, even for the idea of how human beings relate to one another as being equal in dignity before God. And that, that is something that, it, it's a very simple thing. All we have to do is recover our own sense of who we are as the West, as the Judeo-Christian civilization, and to defend that as such. But no one has the courage to do that because of the dominance of the multiculturalist ethos. Well, <clears throat> let me, this, one, this is Spock's, let me go to uh, even Warwick and then Frank Gaffney. Right, just, just um, um, I think nobody seems to have addressed this, this, this problem. Um, on the 28th of March this year, um, the, um, the Islamic nations who dominate the Human Rights uh, Council at the, at the, 
in Geneva, they managed to kill freedom of expression. The 57 Islamic states, with support from China, Russia, and Cuba, succeeded in forcing through an amendment to, uh, to a resolution on freedom of expression. The UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression will now be required to report on the abuse of, the, of this freedom. Thus, people like Theo van Gogh, the Danish cartoonist, and Gate Wilders, and anyone criticizing Islam or the Sharia will now be deemed to have abused the freedom of expression. In other words, instead of protecting freedom of expression, the amendment will now be limiting the freedom of expression. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the one redeeming feature, this is a, in, in reply to, to Robert's uh, lament, um, of the whole uh, farce was um, that that there was a, a passionate plea from 21 courageous NGOs from the Islamic states, along with 19 other organizations such as the Cartoonist Rights Network of the USA, to delegations to oppose the amendment. Uh, um, they, I won't read you their statement, it, um, but. The, the, there are people, groups um, in, in the Islamic countries like the Damascus Center for Human Rights Studies, the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, uh, uh, Free Media Movement of Sri Lanka, um, there's uh, Pakistan Press Foundation, uh, Sisters uh, Arab Forum for Human Rights and so on. These were the, the NGOs who, who wanted to protect the freedom of expression. Now the big, big danger with this, this amendment is that uh, the Sharia and its Islamic definition of blasphemy will now become part of, um, uh, lawyers amongst you will know this better than I, uh, of customary international law, which would have the effect of imposing the blasphemy prescription upon all national jurisdictions and implicitly requiring jurisdictions to enact and enforce legislation compatible with this ban. One hopes that the liberal democratic nations of the West will not accept such principles of international law that go against their own fundamental principles. We know, for example, that the blasphemy law was recently abolished in Great Britain. Uh, could, I mean, could this be the start of a breaking up of transnational legal institutions? And finally, I mean, uh, it should be apparent to anyone that the, the United Nations has become an additional arm in, 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 the, uh, in the jihadist arsenal. Can, can the Western and other truly democratic nations continue to squander money with their particip participation in that most corrupt and Islamic of institutions, the United Nations? Frank, this was a very important intervention, I have to say, because I think it's not widely understood just how insidious the sort of secular form of transnationalism, which has come to be called many things, it's, it's epitomized by the UN, of course, but it's myriad other institutions, especially those promoting this notion of universal jurisprudence or international norms that are enacted by NGOs or by other nations at their behest and then imposed by judges here uh, is a very insidious problem. It is It has got sort of the counterpart to the domestic lash up between the radical left, which of course admires these transnational secular institutions and 
the Islamofascists. And I just I wanted to make a quick point on human rights. Um, clearly, why we are having this conversation at the end of the day is in part because of the threat of violence. The, the soft jihad is, is all fine. That's, that can go on. But the violence is what is assuring that we are seeing these kinds of self-censorship or overt censorship taking place. It is the violence that is giving rise to, I think, I'm hoping at least, a greater and greater awareness that Sharia embracing jihad is a seditious activity. And just as we've seen the other side say, well, now we're going to institutionalize through legal mechanisms impediments to your dealing with this threat, it falls to us, I believe, to use legal instruments to defend our country. And Ibn has mentioned the Cold War. During that period, 18 U.S. Code 2385, popularly known as the Smith Act, was adopted. It has been tested four times in the Supreme Court. Uh, our friend and colleague, Andy McCarthy, has prosecuted people under it. And it is time that we use it once again, because if we can't do that, I am quite confident not only will we continue to see this Fabian Sharia encroaching, we will see whatever running room, whatever latitude anti-Islamist Muslims, to say nothing of the larger Muslim population that is not willing to get off their couch or, or even sympathetic to these guys, will be suppressed. And it is one of the reasons why, just to come back to the point about banking, Sharia-compliant finance is an instrument to try to deny Muslims the space to do other, to be other than Sharia adherent. And it is another reason why we must, among the many other things we must do, resist the efforts to prevent that kind of freedom to Muslims as well as the rest of us. Thank you. I think I'm going to have, I, regretfully, I think I'm going to have to stop there so we're on time for lunch and the great uh, privilege of hearing Mark Stein speak. So we'll adjourn here, but this is the way I have all day to continue discussing these questions. Thanks to the panel very much. That was terrific.